0: Good morning, everyone. This is a great honor to be here. It's a beautiful church, beautiful people, and it's a beautiful sunny day in Southern California. So I was, you know, warned, uh, you know, the media is always warning people not to go to Israel because it's super dangerous. So I was thinking, okay, I'll go to the U.S. and then I turn on the TV, hurricane said, all right, then I'll go to Asia. Typhoon, super typhoon. Israel is not that dangerous after all. See, the media is giving us very bad press. In fact, I call them the Midianites, as you all know. Um, you know, Israel is, is much safer uh, than Chicago, for example. Um, more people died in Chicago in the last month than in Israel in the last 10 years. It has to be brought to the the right perspective. Um, I want you to understand that um, we live in unbelievable times. I, I mean, for so many years I've been teaching Bible prophecy. And there's always the aspect of teaching about future events with the hope that it's going to happen but it's it's a different story when you live through the days when it happens. You know last night Israel uh, had a, an airstrike in Damascus. I don't know if you know that. We sent a few F-16s and we, uh, we sent them a gift card. Um, <laughs> apparently the Iranians, uh, you know over the last month we've noticed that Cargo planes are flying non-stop to the Damascus International Airport. We see exactly what is being unloaded and we see where it's being stored. So the same storehouses where they stored weapons before and were destroyed by us were reconstructed. But this time they thought to pull the trick by covering or painting the roof of those storehouses with either UN or DHL, with the colors of DHL. So a quick phone call to DHL and they don't have anything in Damascus. And a quick phone call to the UN, they have no storehouses in the airport in Damascus. So all we needed to do is clarify with the Russians that they understand that we're about to do something and notifying the State Department and the Pentagon that the UN and the DHL storehouses are going to become parking lots. (laughs) And that is exactly what happened. It's unbelievable in my eyes that Israel is watching Iranian entrenchment in Syria is watching Turkish entrenchment in northern Syria and is asking permission from the Russians to go and strike Damascus. It's unbelievable. Now, I would definitely talk about that when I teach Bible prophecy, but it's another thing to quote today and yesterday's headlines. Russia is already on the border with Israel. In fact, The only patrols that we have along the border with Syria are Russian soldiers, Russian vehicles with Russian flags. We see them every day. It's amazing because um, how many of you watch my uh, weekly updates on YouTube, Facebook, YouTube? Shame on you, not too many. (laughs) Well, if you would have done that, you would have known that um, Israel just recently in the last few weeks Realized that what we thought we have is actually n- What we have is actually much more than what we thought we have as far as gas natural gas We just found out that the some of the reservoirs of natural gas that we have are two to five times bigger than what we had originally thought and and we uh, are becoming a big competition to the Russian gas export to um, Europe today. You, you understand that right now we are negotiating with uh, Greece and, and and Cyprus and Italy on uh, putting a gas pipe under the Mediterranean that will cost seven billion dollars and America actually said that they are willing to be part of this project and that is why the Russians are trying to cut a deal with Germany on an 11 billion dollar project of another gas pipe and uh, President Trump made it very clear to Angela Merkel that you cannot expect me to defend you in NATO and then do business with that enemy that we're trying to defend you, uh, defend you from. I mean that, that doesn't work. Uh, in fact uh, NATO's Secretary-General today, for the first time, thanked President Trump for pushing the other members to pay their part in everything. So after they bash and smear and all of that, eventually they get to their senses and they realize, this guy's actually, now we see money flowing. They, everyone understands you have two options here to be puppets of Putin or to do things in a different way. And, and for some of the countries such as Serbia and Hungary and Bulgaria who were under the Iron Curtain for so many, many years, the option of returning to being under the thumb of the Soviets is not even an option. They don't want that. And that brings Israel to become a candidate, the Undersecretary of uh, um, Energy of the United States, took part in a meeting in, in Greece the other day and said um, and actually John Bolton also said uh, that uh, Europe should buy gas from Israel. Now, I'm, I live in 2018 to see the days when Israel is competing with Russia and it's not a nice thing to know that the Russians don't like this competition. And so just to make it very clear, the hook in the jaw of Rosh to come down all the way to the border with Israel was already placed. It worked already. It's coming all the way down and it's on our border. And it's only a matter of weeks or months before they will understand that Israel as an ally is not as as friendly as Israel, as a source where we can take the spoils of war from. It's interesting, you know, I'm always amazed how, how God used the prophets in order. The prophets of Israel, you know, don't try to become a prophet. Okay, you most likely are not called to be one. You know, God said in, in the New Testament that He spoke to our fathers through the prophets of the Old Testament. And, and, and you have to understand that the prophets never said anything of their own private interpretation. And you know, when I open Ezekiel chapter 38 to, that describes the coming war, you can actually see that um, the Lord says through Ezekiel, Thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servant, the prophets of Israel? Isn't that interesting? Ezekiel is writing something about himself. (laughs) He doesn't even know. He's writing a future event. And he's actually saying to Russia, are you not the one that Ezekiel wrote about? And Ezekiel is writing that. It's amazing. We're watching it before our very eyes. You cannot take away the prophets of Israel from from the picture of what's going on. They gave us an amazing, amazing picture. And and when Hebrews chapter 1 says that God spoke in the ancient times to our fathers by the prophets, He also said, he's now, look, I'm I'm going to read it. This is a new Bible. I just got it yesterday. He says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. He has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made. The world. So here we are seeing that Jesus never contradicted a single verse from the prophet. He is continuing in the same mantle. So he's now, we're coming to the point where Jesus, towards the end of his ministry, is on the Mount of Olives and he's surrounded by his disciples. None of his disciples was Catholic or Orthodox Christian. Um, Yes. Jesus taught his Jewish disciples while he was in Jerusalem. And to make make it very clear, in the history of planet Earth, Jerusalem was never a capital of any other nation but of Israel. So here you're having a Jewish Messiah speaking to the Jewish disciples in the Jewish capital of the Jewish people. And, and, and we have to take things in the right context because the questions that he was asked by his disciples to which he gave a great and lengthy and detailed answer. Those are questions that his disciples were asking. Uh, of, of, these are authentic Jewish issues related to the Jewish temple, the Messiah and the last days. No Gentile in those days was thinking about the last days, was thinking about the Messiah, or was thinking about the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, the temple in Jerusalem was the only temple in the world that did not contain a single statue in it. That was a big enigma to the Gentiles in those days. How can you have such a huge structure and not even a single statue in it? Are you guys nuts? And, and, and you know, they say that if you came to Israel 2,000 years ago, you, you actually, as a Gentile, you were amazed at three things a temple that contains no statue, a day in the week where no one works, and the sea where everybody floats. Now, Gentiles in those days were not interested in one God, nor in a temple that contained no statue. And so, he's talking to the Jews about Jewish matters that interest the Jews, even of those days. And he's doing that on Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. On the top of Mount of Olives, he sat down and with his disciples. And by the way, he was not angry with their questions. You know, he understood exactly where they come from. And he took his time to give them a detailed answer. In the first verses of 4 to 31, he's speaking to the Jews about the future of the Jews. But then starting from verse 32, He is giving them also a different perspective of what's going to happen while it is going to happen to the Jews. And he's talking about something else, someone else, other group of people, which by the way, they are also part of. So Matthew 24, verses 32 to 35, that's the topic of our message this morning. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. Jesus is, after he spoke about all the things that Israel is going to go through, he stops in the middle of his teaching on Israel. And now he's telling his disciples, now listen, I want you to learn a parable from the fig tree. In other words, what I'm going to tell you about the fig tree is not exactly About a fig tree, it's a symbol of something different. It's just a parable, the fig tree. He's basically saying this. Look, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know, say, you know, it's not you think, it's not you guess, you know, you know, that summer is near. So you also, when you see, say, you see. It's not when you're taught about, it's not when you're hoping for, it's not when you dream of. You see with your very eyes. When you see all these things, know that it is near, not 200 yards away, not 200 miles away. Where? At the doors. Right there. So so Jesus is basically telling, The disciples, look, the fig tree, remember the fig tree, that fig tree that died, it's going to come back to life. And I want to tell you something. This generation that is going to live, it says, the generation that will by no means pass away, will. It says, the generation that will see, see. The rebirth of that tree, that generation, shall not pass away until these things take place. What things? He's coming back. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Just like God says through the uh, psalmist and the prophets so many times in the Bible. The flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of God stand forever. Wow. So so he he stopped his entire description of the end times of Israel and he's telling now them now listen I want to talk to you now not as Israel but you're different. You you followed me and you can escape this And if you're going to be living through the days to see the fig tree blooming, that's it. That's the last generation. Wow. You need to pinch yourself right now. You know? So so he says it's a parable, which means the fig tree is just a symbol before we talk about the fig tree, let's talk about the fact that he just mentioned the word generation. And let's face it, scholars and theologians and and teachers and pastors for years were were pondering and and, and debating on, on what is a generation. Some say 20 years, some say 30 years, some suggest 40 years, others say longer than that. The generation question was always there. So I want to show you what, what has to be a generation that he meant. What are the other options that actually cannot really hold water? Okay, so first of all, we have to understand a generation biblically has always been the, longe- the, lo- uh, the longevity of mankind. You can see it in Genesis, in Psalms, in Jeremiah, in Acts, in Joshua. It's always been so that a generation, as described in the Bible, begins at conception. For all those who are pro-abortion, life begins at conception. So if you're talking about a lifespan, lifespan begins at conception. And it ends at death. Okay? It's just that he's having fun swimming for nine months. He? Where is he? Swimming. He's alive. You always make sure he's alive. But he's just swimming and he has some weird food that you don't have to buy. It's just, you just produce it. That's all. Amazing. Amazing to see, I, I, I always was amazed when I touched my wife's uh, pregnant belly, when, when I could see the, the foot of the baby. You no, know, he was, and, and I was like, I don't know if I could be a pregnant woman. Forget about the birth pangs and all of that. I'm talking about the fact that there's a living creature inside of you. Amazing! He's a... Lot. How can people say that it's not a living creature? He's there. He's kicking. He's he's talking. It's amazing. And he's swimming. And he's so happy. He has no clue what's going to happen next. Yes. <laughs> the average lifespan of a group of people living at about the same time constitutes the length of a generation. In other words, you can be 12 years old here and 92 years old here. This could be an 80 years difference. But everything you see together makes you the generation that is watching those things. Whether you're 12 or 82 or 92, you are still the generation. It's a lifespan of a group of people. Before the biblical flood, the, the flood, the, the average lifespan of a man was over 900 years. We know that. The Bible records that. Today, if a person makes it to 100, he's a celebrity. But you understand what happened after the flood and with the works of sin and, and all of that. We can see it's gotten short and shorter and shorter to the point, by the way, that David the king died when he was 70 and he was considered an old man. And of course, things had improved over the last, I don't know, 100 years or so because of the advanced medicine and all of that. Now we managed to prolong life. It's no longer 60 or 50. Now it's getting back up there to every every year we're actually prolonging the uh, average lifespan. So some people say a generation must be 40 years because the Bible talks about (coughs) the wilderness generation. Well, let me explain. Both Numbers 32, <coughs> Psalm 95, and Hebrews 3 talks about the wilderness generation. The term generation there is not about a lifespan of a generation. It's something completely different. Let's read, in Numbers it says, Surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and above shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham. Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, except Caleb, the son of Bephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun. For they have wholly followed the Lord. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years. So you understand, he talks about a sentence over anyone who is 20 and above. And they had forty years in the desert, so in a, in, 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 in a way the the number forty is not even anything important here because they were at sixty at least to some pour, uh, to some part over here and um A 40-year period was actually just the required time for the disobedient generation of Moses' day to die off in the wilderness. So it's not a generation as far as a lifespan; It's just a a judgment period that we're talking about. The curse was to be against the men who had reached 20 years of age. And after the 40-year judgment period was completed, There were no men left older than 60 years of age, except of Joshua and Caleb. Of course, both of them outlived the rest. So you cannot say it's even 60 because they lived longer than that. So you see that the term generation of the wilderness doesn't hold much water in this case. But then there's the view from the Psalmist. You know, there's only one Psalm that was written by Moses. Did you know that? One psalm. Psalm 90. Psalm 90, it's one of the oldest psalms that were ever written. And the Bible clearly says that a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And then he goes on in verse 9 and 10. And he says, for all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength, they are 80 years. Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away." So if we already understand that... 20 and 30 years is not a lifetime of a generation. And if we also understand that the generation of wilderness that gave us the idea of 40 years, it's not applicable also. Now we see that in the book of Psalms, especially in light of the fact that David wrote most of them and he lived only to the age of 70. 70, maybe 80 in the good case is a lifespan of a generation. Interesting, very, very interesting. You, you, you can clearly see that 70 to 80 years lifespan for the past 3,000 years was probably, um, was probably the case. And uh, David, of course, lived there. And, and, and studies were showing basically that, uh, for example, uh, the life expectancy of those living in the United States in 1850 was less than 40 years, but increased to 47 by 1900, and then mushroomed to 77 years by 1999. And by the end of the 20th century, uh, we see that according to the 2002 World Almanac and Book of Facts, the average life expectancy in the United States is 77 years, 74 for male and 80 for females. Wow! You can live without us. We can't live without you. But it's interesting. for Israel, it is 79 years, 77 for males and 81 years for females. And the average life expectancy at birth for Israel is projected to be 82 in the years 2025. So now we understand we're talking about anything between 70 to 80, maybe a little bit more. Anything. So which generation did Jesus or was Jesus talking about? Now comes the best part of this message. See, some people think, some teachers, they think that when Jesus talked about that generation shall not pass away, He talked about Israel. But I find it very odd. Why? Because He's talking about a generation that is going to watch Israel. He doesn't talk about the fig tree. It talks about the generation that will see the fig tree comes back to life. Wow! So I believe it talks about the believers of the time. I believe that the most significant end time prophecy is the rebirth of Israel and the rebirth of the fig tree. You have to understand, Israel in the Scriptures has been described in three different types of trees. The vine, the fig and the olive. Each and every one of them was a symbol of something else. The vine was a symbol of the spiritual privileges of Israel. The fig was a symbol of Israel's national privileges. And that's why the birth of Israel is a nation. They were still the people of God. He still cared about them. But there was no rebirth as a nation back in the land. So the national privileges are the fig and the religious ones, the olive tree. That olive tree that had roots deep, the roots of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God says, I am the Lord and remember my name. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So when somebody says to you, Oh, we the Muslims, we believe in the same God as you. We believe in the God of Abraham. Well, ask him if he believes in the God of Isaac and Jacob also. Because that's the full name of our God. And if they say, if they stop at Abraham, that's not the same God, folks. So regarding the vine, we have enough proofs in Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5 and Jeremiah 2 and Isaiah 5. Hosea 5 again and the fig tree, Hosea 9, talk about the fig tree, Jeremiah 24 and of course in our case in Matthew 24 and the olive tree is in Hosea 14, Isaiah 17, Isaiah 24, Psalm 52, Psalm 128, and Romans 11. Romans 11 speaks of Israel being the good olive tree, and the Gentiles being the wild olive tree, and how some of the branches of the olive tree were take, were chopped off. And, and you, the Gentiles, being wild olive tree, were grafted in. And now you're not instead, but you're partakers of the fatness of the oil. Amazing. So you see the the privileges that Israel had cannot be taken from them. You have been grafted in. And now you are also in a way part of And this is why, by the way, everywhere they will hate Israel, they're going to hate the believers. Everywhere they will want to get rid of Israel, they're going to get rid of the believers. It goes together. And if there are churches that are teaching that God had replaced Israel, then they're actually mocking God. Because they're actually saying God is in the business of changing His mind. And in fact, the only insurance policy the church has that God is keeping His covenant with you, is the fact that He keeps the covenant with Israel. And the fig tree is coming back to life. It's not dead forever. Look at this picture. When the Jewish people started coming back to the land of Israel towards the uh, end of the 1800s, they found exactly what Mark Twain said in his um, diary that he wrote uh, uh, as a traveler. And he just wrote, I've never seen such a barren wasteland in my life where we hardly saw a living creature. I mean, the Arabs say they were there. He couldn't see anyone. He even said, no, no, it's, it's a fact. Most Arabs came to the land as a result of the Jewish immigration. When Jewish people brought business and brought some, some uh, 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 mindset of, of developing, then they started coming to work for them. And it's interesting because look at these people probably coming from Poland or Russia that certainly dressed like that but they're just trying to farm dead land their biggest enemy was actually not the arabs there because there are hardly any their biggest enemy were the anopheles mosquitoes that brought the malaria from those swamps all around and it's interesting because they started coming cuz the lord started doing two things he said Okay, I have to bring that fig tree back to life. So I have the word Zionism, which the enemy likes to mock and tell you that it's terrible. Zionism is actually the desire of the Jews to return back to their homeland. Homeland is Zion. When you're a Zionist, you believe that your place as a Jew is in Zion. That's what makes you a Zionist. Okay, so the Zionist movement started in Europe. And at the same time, terrible anti-Semitism started. So the desire to go to Israel with the desire of the rest to kick them out of the other lands, was a great instrument in that victory coming back to life. And it's interesting because look, in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 8, it says, and I speak to you, mountains of Israel, shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit for my people Israel, for they are about to come. The Lord knew that there is no way hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of Jews can return to a land like this. It will never work. So what did the Lord do? He spoke fertility and boom, look what happened. Look, today we export food. We, we, listen, while farm workers, are 3.8% of the workforce in Israel we actually produce almost 100% of our food the jewish cows are the most productive cows in the world <laughs> every moo is computerized the cows complain but produce we are number 1 in the world in technology to extract water from even from the air we invented the drip irrigation system. We are number one exporter of desalination uh, uh, um, uh, installations all around the world, and we do that even in Israel. Listen, we use solar energy like no other country does, and 90% of our wastewater is being purified and recycled for agriculture. Guys, I mean, I went to a, a place that had a an amazing pool and the lady says, guess how deep it is, it was clear. I said, three meters? She says, 11. I said, what? She said, taste it. I tasted it, it was amazing. She said, good, I just flushed the toilet. I said, what? (laughs) Whoa. She said, No, no, it doesn't go like that. I flush the toilet, the water goes all the way to a pool where there's some um, water plants, they start cleaning the water. Then it moves to another pool where other water plants clean the water, to another pool. By the end of the fourth pool, the water is completely pure. Wow. We export that to the whole world, and you don't need electricity for that. The water just gravity goes all the way until they reach the pure and the nice uh, state. Listen. We, we export so much technology to the whole world. India, the largest, the most populated country in the world. We are number 3 in their um, military equipment import. I mean, first the import from Russia, then America, and then from Israel. That dot on the map. Look, that's God saying, the fig tree is coming back to life. Okay, so, so then he says, look, first of all, I have to prepare the land. Then he says, now I have to bring the people. But the people are in Europe. Now, unfortunately, they're not going through a good time. You know, if Ezekiel 36 talked about how God will, will heal the land in preparation of the return of the Jews to their land. Then in Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel was brought to a valley full of dry bones, and Ezekiel was so terrified. And Ezekiel says, what is this? And and the Lord says, Son of man, in verse 11, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves have been cut off. That means they're alive. It's dry bones, but they're alive. It, it, It means it's a person that has bones and skin, but no hope. He thinks that God forgot all about him. And I remember thinking about these verses for so long and then I stumbled into a picture from when we liberated the death camps. And I looked at this little boy that has skin and bones, no flesh almost at all. And look at his eyes. There is no hope. He, All of them think God forgot all about us. And God says, no. No, tell them, Behold of my people, I will open your graves and I will cause you to come up from your graves and I will bring you into the land of Israel, not Palestine, the land of Israel. And then he says, and I will know. And then I, the Lord, when I have opened your graves, O my people, I will bring you up from your graves and I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. It's not somebody else's land. It called Israel and it belongs to you. So when a U.S. president says, I think that Jerusalem belongs to Israel, it's very biblical. It's not political. Wow! So he said, listen, you're going to have a family. You're going to come to Israel and I'll make you a great nation. And I'm thinking how he, he literally did that. Look, look, the next picture, you're going to see we came by the thousands on, on boats. Look at this jumbo 747. We took off away, we, we gutted all the seats out of it and we put a thousand Ethiopian Jews inside. Thank God they're very, very slim. <laughs> And if that's not enough, Jews continue to return to Israel every day by modern airplanes, every day. Look, one of, this, one of the major, tar- major uh, uh, um, tasks of the Israeli Secret Service, the Mossad, is to bring the Jews back home. Did you know that it's not killing your enemy? It's bringing the Jews back home. That's it. And, and in 1948, the nation was born. In 1948, the nation was born. And thus, we start the counting of a generation. Think about it. 1948, we were born as a nation that was on the verge of annihilation every day. Every single day of that year and the following year and the following year was every day was a day that was a gift from God because we were supposed to be destroyed. All of our enemies all around us are, were contemplating day and night, how are we going to destroy them? 1948, two hours after we what oh, two hours, less than that after we declared statehood, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan and Egypt invaded. And if that's not enough, even Iraq invaded. And if that's not enough, the local Arabs started from within. And we ended up the war with 30% more land than we had when we started the war. And doing that with what? Two aircrafts. that we need to hold the stick in one hand and throw the bomb with the other. <laughs> and five armored vehicles. And hundreds of or tens of thousands of soldiers that have absolutely no experience. They just survived death camps like my grandparents. It's a miracle. Now, They tried to take some of Israel's victories to West Point to teach officers how to fight a war. And they looked through all the stories of the wars and they just threw it all the way to the garbage because you cannot teach anything. The Israelis didn't do anything great. God fought everywhere for them. West Point cannot take Israel's wars and teach anything. 1948, Psalm 83 was fulfilled. All the nations that Psalm 83 mentions are all the countries around us. And he even says "And Assyria even joined them, Iraq of today. And what is it that they wanted from us in in 1948? Oil? Gas? We had none of these. They wanted us to be cut off from being a nation because we just changed the name from Palestine to Israel that the name of Israel will be remembered no more. So that was that war. And look, how many of you here were alive in the last 10 years? (laughs) You see, in the last 10 years, we, the generation that lives right now, we've seen an amazing, Amazing transition from Israel being small, vulnerable, insecure, dangerous, and very poor. To Israel being safe, secure, and prosperous. So much so, that we are held today as the 8th most powerful nation on planet Earth. And where are we? In 2018, 70 years passed. Ooh. last time I checked the song, 70, maybe 80 is a generation. Look, I believe the Feast of Trumpets and the Yom Kippur and the Tabernacles will be fulfilled to the people of Israel. When the Lord will come back, you see, the Jewish people pray every morning. May our eyes will behold your return to Zion with mercy. They say that every day. They they want him to come back, and but they don't believe he's coming back. They believe he's coming for the first time. But you have to understand something. They understand that when he comes back. It's going to be a terrible time of tribulation that will eventually bring him back. And they believe that there has to be a great time of repentance. The whole thing of repentance and the whole thing of of, of tabernacling physically on earth with, with everyone will happen later. As God will fulfill those festivals to Israel, just as he did with the first four of them. But for us, we see a different fulfillment. You understand when Moses was commanded in Numbers chapter 10 to make two silver trumpets. Two silver trumpets. Why two? Why silver? Why trumpets? Trumpets are a mean to announce the coming of someone. Silver is precious metal, but not perfect. And two, because I believe there's only two groups of people. On planet Earth, that God called them, you are my witnesses. Israel in Isaiah 46 and the church in Acts chapter 1. Now throughout the history of Israel, the church did not exist all throughout the Old Testament. But from the moment the church became a church, Israel was thrown out of the land. Israel as a nation was not back in the land. And only since 1948, the two coexist. The trumpets are sounding their sound. That's why the Bible says at the last trumpet, boom, we're out of here. I believe 1948 was a great sound of the trumpet. 1967 was a great sound of the trumpet. If I may say, 2018 was a great sound of trumpet as well. All I'm waiting for is the last trumpet. Now, the Bible says that we don't know the day and the hour. In Matthew 24, it says, "...but of the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only." This is only applicable for the rapture of the church. Why? Because regarding Israel's salvation at the end of the tribulation, everybody knows it's a seven years. Everybody knows at the end of the seven years. Look, we have a description of the number of the days. (laughs) The only thing that we miss out here is when should we start counting. Because we start counting only when we're out of here. So when he says that the day of the Lord will so come as a thief in the night, it will surprise everyone, but not us the Bible says in 1st Thessalonians chapter 5, it shall, not come as th- "...it shall not come as a thief in the night for you. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them." Who is going to celebrate peace in the Middle East in the construction of the Third Temple? Israel. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you something. In Matthew 25, Jesus said, "'Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming.'" We don't know the day, we don't know the hour, but it's not going to surprise us because we know the times, we know the seasons. In fact, the Bible says, "'Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourself know perfectly.'" I love it. So many Christians. oh. Those who call themselves Christians, they don't know perfectly anything. In fact, they are not even looking forward to it. When the Bible says, You know perfectly. For yours, you yourself know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. And I'm wondering why thief in the night? Because as long as we are in this world, this world is a dark world. According to Romans 13, verse 12, it says, "...the night is far spent, the day is at hand." So we're at the very end, the day is at hand, but we're still in the night. We're at the tail end of the night. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 4 and 5 talked about how we are of the day, although we're still in the night. "...the night is far spent, the day is at hand, and we are not of the night, but of the day." And this is why... I love to conclude this message with the verses from Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Because I know there are so many Christians that are so tired. They're like, how long can we still stay here? I always tell them, rejoice in the Lord always. You know? (laughs) Philippians says that and he says, the Lord is at hand. That's why you need to rejoice. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. What is our hope? The blessed hope. For he who promised is faithful. Everything he said has happened. Why do you doubt about the coming rapture when Israel is back in the land? Just as he said. The fig tree is alive. And look at this let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together." That's the, the biggest disease of the church in the 21st century, is that people stop going to church. They just sit in front of the computer, they think that's church. No, that's not church. Church is church. There is something about corporate worship that cannot be replaced. And, and if you forsake that, you're very vulnerable. I can tell you that one. And he says, you have to, more than ever before, go to a a, a corporate gathering. He says, this is the manner of some, but but exhorting one another, he said, and so much the more, as, what does it say? You see, you see, you see, it's not you think, you hope, you see, physically, you see. Do you see? Israel back in the land? Do you see the transition of Israel to safe, secure and prosperous? Do you see Rush coming all the way? Do you see them on our border? Do you see Iran and Turkey contemplating against us? Do you see the hook in the jaw, the gas that we find? Do you see that Israel is... Blooming, he says, as you see the day approaching, Father, we thank you so much that we are the generation that shall not pass away, and we are we know that, Father, because you told us exactly. The criteria for this generation. Father, we see the fig tree coming back to life. Israel is back in the land, safe, secure and prosperous. We see how you miraculously healed the land, revived the language, brought the people from the four corners of the world back to their ancestral homeland. And you have prospered them. Above and beyond anything any country can ever do in circumstances like that. Father, we see your fingerprints everywhere. And all that is left for us is to see the day is approaching. To hold fast the confession of our hope. And to trust that He who promised is faithful. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness shown to us through the way you conducted yourself through the people of Israel. You did not forget about them, Father. As you said, O my people, I will bring you back to your land, and I will breathe life into you and you shall live. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your faithfulness to your nation, Israel. And Father, we pray that watching and seeing this will cause us to prepare ourselves as the bride expecting the bridegroom any day now. We thank you, Father, that you declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying, your counsel shall stand and you will do all your pleasure. We bless your name today, and we ask all of this in the matchless name of the Holy One of Israel. The one who is the Lamb of God, but also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Emmanuel, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. In the name of Yeshua the salvation of Israel, and the light of revelation to the whole world. In the name of Jesus, we pray and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.